Startup Grind Columbus is a monthly event to educate and inspire entrepreneurs. We actively live Startup Grind's global community values of give first, help others, and make friends. Startup Grind Columbus is made possible by our lead partners, AWH, builders of exceptional digital products that drive business for growth companies and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com slash Columbus to see a list of upcoming events and to see videos from our past events. Now, on to this month's event podcast. Further ado, we'll get started talking with Amelia. Please help me welcome Amelia again, please. Is your mic good? I think it works. Okay, yes. good. So uh, we've established you don't know any jokes. No jokes. No, no jokes. So if there's going to be any funny content, then I'm going to have to clearly bring it. Um, It'll be the form of interpretive dance. But you could do response. right. So if you were to, if you were going to interpretive dance a joke, what would that look like? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Would, I will, I'll even hold your mic. What would that look like? Wow, spectacular! <laughs> Thanks for playing along. It wasn't very funny, but yeah, but it was good. Uh, so Amelia is a is a retired professional ballerina. So what is that like? What is it like to dance professionally and then to be a retired professional ballerina? So full disclosure, you get to be a retired ballerina no matter what age you retire. You train for so long that even if you dance professionally only for a couple of years, you call yourself a retired ballerina. Uh, so I get to be retired in something, which is pretty cool. Um, it's really interesting. I grew up, I started dancing when I was about four or five years old. Um, by the time I was in junior high, high school, I was dancing six days a week, uh, like 20, 20 something hours a week training. And you don't realize that you just do more and more until you're doing it six days a week. And then you're doing it 20 hours a week. And then you suddenly like wake up and you've like had all this amazing training. But along the way, you learned dedication and you learned how sometimes you're going to get injured and you're going to have to recover and you learn that you're not always going to get the lead role and that you're going to have to work as a team in order for everyone to look consistent, right? If anyone's ever been in the Nutcracker, you see like, you know, 12 dancers all dancing in sync and you're all different heights and all different shapes and yet you all have to look coordinated. And so you learn a lot about teamwork along the way that you don't really appreciate, I think, until you get out in college and start working in like teams or you go into the business world, you work. You go into a company and you realize you're working with like marketing and legal and finance and everyone speaks different languages, which is very similar to um, dance or even like church, right? Like people have like Catholic masses the same everywhere. I think it's really interesting because ballet is the same. When I travel, I try to still take ballet class and I can take the same class from uh, someone who's Russian, someone who's French, someone who's anything and you can go to different cities and ballet class is very similar everywhere. I think it's pretty cool. So... Is being a professional ballerina, by definition, does it mean that you got paid to dance? Is that the definition of being a professional or not? Yeah, yeah, I did. I got paid to dance for like two years. <laughs> but but it's... It, you, you, it seems surprising to you that that happens still. Yeah, yeah, and by paid, I mean like 200 bucks a week is, is considered getting paid to dance. Right? Like the contracts are, are nothing. You get paid like professional dancers in a core in like a regional ballet company like Ballet Met, or I'll use Louisville Ballet, for example, because I know they get paid. They get paid like $14,000 a year. And that is what you worked your whole life to do. 
Uh, and so you end up teaching yoga or teaching dance or doing all these other things. And you have this hustle, right? Uh, which I think translates interestingly into the startup world because for so long, so many people, when they start up, they you know, aren't taking a salary for a long time, but you're driven by this like internal passion. Um, so it's really interesting to see a lot of that stuff translates. A lot of people that I danced with went on to, you know, they only danced for a couple of years and they went on to be like, you know, they're doing their residencies now or, or they're lawyers now or whatever. Like anything that takes, you know, you look at a college degree and you're like, I trained for 10 years to be a dancer. I have to go to college for four years to be an engineer. Like, piece of cake. So that's a great segue into how did you transition from being a professional dancer to this corporate innovation product startup venture stuff? What was that sort of tipping point? And did you always know that you'd end up here? Or was it more opportunistic than strategic? Yeah, I, I think what's super interesting is that people would always ask you, like, what's your five-year plan? Or, like, when you go to interviews, right, it's really generic to ask people what you want to, where you see yourself in five years. I think that's a super hard question to answer. It's kind of a bullshit question. Is, right? <laughs> I think so. Like, I don't know, five years ago, I was in college, thought I was going to be a chemical engineer, right? And then, you know, the next five years, or, you know, before that, I thought I was going to be a professional dancer for a lot longer. So it's really hard um, to, I think, make those decisions for myself. Even now, what I'm going to be doing five years from now, I don't know. Um, but the transition for me was that I was dancing, and I realized, you know, the, the thing I think they don't tell you is that there's, in sports, in, in dance and art, there's so much that has to do with, with the physicality of your body and then your work ethic, right? But there are certain limitations that you just can't overcome, right? There are certain things in the way your spine is shaped that you can or can't get your leg a certain height, right? There are certain things around your physicality that you just, you cannot overcome and you can work really hard to try to, right? But there are, there will always be certain physical limitations and you can decide whether you are going to push to overcome them, whether you're going to get injured or whether, you know, and that's not to be discouraging, that's to be kind of frank with yourself, right? Like I, I might not be able to play basketball or not, might not be like a, a jockey in like a, you know, Kentucky Derby, right, because of my height. And I think that sometimes acknowledging those are really helpful because you're able to explore the other things that you're really talented at. And so that's kind of what I started to do. I said, well, what else am I passionate about, you know, other than dance? And I realized I, I really enjoyed, um, you know, problem solving. My aunt was an engineer. Uh, so when I was you know, auditioning for dance companies when I was graduating high school, you always had to have a backup because literally at any point in your career you could get injured, right? So maybe this is just me always constantly trying to solve my own problem is I always just assumed, like I always just checked the box for engineering because my aunt was an engineer and where I grew up in like this little town of Yuma, Arizona, like you didn't have that many role models, so my aunt was my engineer. And so I was like, oh, well, engineering, duh. She was the only one who went to college in my family. So I didn't realize until I, like, got to college that there was this stigma around, you know, there weren't that many women in engineering, and you just kind of, like, grow up in this little bubble. And then as I've gotten older, I'm like, wow, like, that one person being in my life, like, completely changed my own trajectory. Yeah, so how powerful was it, the fact that you had sort of always associated yourself to engineering and to being an engineer and you didn't really think about the ramifications of that, and it didn't hit you just later where you realized, oh, there actually aren't that many female engineers. So yeah. it sounds like the fact that there was a little bit of maybe ignorance or lack of foresight around it was good because it, it didn't prevent you from doing it. Yeah, and that's why I, I think I've met so many other women um, that have that same mission to, like, if they could influence like one other young person to go into it or to not realize that there are any barriers, it's like extremely powerful. I met so many other women who were like, oh no, I had this like one person who like showed me what this job opportunity was. Because when you grow up, you hear about, you know, when you're a kid, you just 
learn from everything around you, right? Like, and so you learn about what being like a firefighter is or a police officer or like a lawyer or a doctor because of the people around you. And so if you've never been exposed to engineering, like how are you supposed to know that that exists? And where in high school do they walk you through? They're like, here are the 200 different like career opportunities. Like it's really hard to know and even to know the difference between a mechanical engineer or a chemical engineer or an aerospace engineer, right? There's, you know, people think of engineers as like train operators or like sound engineers, which is really cool, but like you don't realize that a chemical engineer can do everything from petroleum to, you know, they make the lipstick for L'Oreal, they make the, the coatings on the outside of like Louis Vuitton bags. Like when I was looking at in, uh, internships, I was like, oh my God, you're telling me I could go work for like Louis Vuitton and help design like the coatings on the outside of their bags because they needed a chemical engineer? Like people just don't know. Uh, so trying to get the word out there I think is, is super, super important. So you end up... Um working on some new product and innovation teams at, um, at GE. And so how did that come, how did that sort of come to pass? And, and, and would you consider the teams and the products that you worked on successful? And if yes, why? And if not, why not? Uh, so falling into kind of that role was, was a little bit of luck as well. Um, you know, I'd had this background in, in dance and then I had this, I was on the path towards getting my chemical engineering degree, which I really enjoyed. I was interning in um, petroleum with, with Marathon, actually. Um, and so I worked in Finley for a little while, and then I worked in Ashland, Kentucky. Uh, and it was super It was super fun. Um, you have found all the cool places. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, those are interesting cities. But, but it was... It was, it was it was just all good experiences, but I was. How do, you, how do you fit in in Finley in Ashland, Kentucky, with purple hair? I didn't have the purple hair then. Oh, okay. Yeah, that was. This is only recent. Oh, okay. Um, I have a story about that, but Finley is pretty cool. They have like really good little burger joint. That's really all I remember is this cool ice cream and burger. Place. So what's so what's the what's the story behind your your pur the purple streaks? Um. So when I was working with GE, my 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 kind of first job out of college. Um. Actually, Fro, who's here, my partner back there, um, I was going to do a great... Say hi, Alex. <laughs> Everybody's now looking. Everybody now, uh, Fro so. from Beam Dental. Um, I wanted to have gray hair like you. I wanted... You know the, the trend that was going on where like, all the girls had... Be still my heart. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> all the girls were having gray hair. My hair's too dark to go to do the whole thing gray, so we decided to do a streak, and I could never get it light enough. So it would always be this like weird yellow color, so we just turned the whole thing purple. And I, I got it when I was still working at GE, and I was speaking out in the community a lot in similar events like this. And so I, I was going out and talking to the community about uh, open innovation and in the makerspace that GE had sponsored. Um, and I started to realize that I, was, I, would, I would travel and I would go you know, to New York or other places that people started to associate. Um, the, they would at least remember the girl from GE with the hair. Uh, and so I've just kept it ever since, and it's been this really interesting way of just like, even if you might not remember the name, you remember something about what I was talking about or the work that I was doing because of it, and I thought it was really interesting. So was it, Has it been blue? It's been like neon blue. Okay. I was on accident. Oh, okay. <laughs> I tried to do like this pretty indigo, and when you wash it, it just became neon blue, so just you just kind of own it, right? Okay, because I thought I remember you having it, having it blue at one point, too. Um, okay, N everybody's completely disinterested now because we're talking about the color of your hair. Right. Back to the story. Uh, back to the story. So, GE, how'd you get there? So, did you do good stuff or not? 
Yes, so so ended up there um, via a, a couple hackathons I was participating in. GE wanted to start this new open innovation thing. They didn't know what it was, but they saw you know the squirrel running around like tweeting and talking about the community. And so I, I understood like how Louisville's startup community was working, Louisville, Kentucky. I, I was starting to learn how how the ecosystem was working. And so they originally hired me to do their social media as an intern uh, because I thought, well, you already know how to talk to engineers because you are one. So just keep doing that. Uh, which eventually turned into a full-time job, which turned into uh, partnerships. So I, I started to manage our partnerships. One of our biggest partnerships when I was at GE, uh, specifically their appliance division, um, was with MakerBot, so the 3D printing company. So we were running challenges together. We would go to CES together because a lot of our prototyping was done with MakerBots. Um, that was with when they were really popular. They're kind of on a, on a slow and painful decline now. Um, they were huge at one point. <laughs> they were. They were. Um, they defined the uh, the space at CES for 3D printing, which now has like its own wing. And they were the first ones to kind of establish that space. So I thought that was really cool. So I worked with them, and that's how I started to get this 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 career-ish path towards, towards partnerships. And it was all a lot of luck and a lot of really amazing people kind of shaping the direction I was taking. So did um, the work that happened at GE around sort of innovation and new products, consider it successful or unsuccessful? Yes, you keep asking me that. I keep not yes. answering you. Yes. I will keep uh. asking it until you answer the damn question. Yeah, because uh, corporate innovation is hard and there's rarely successes. So I'm going to tell you, we did have two. Yes, okay, good. Our, our biggest one was around the Opal Nugget Ice Maker. So I worked at GE's group called First Build. It was uh, the innovation group under GE Appliances. And we built what was called the Opal Nugget Ice Maker. And so um, everywhere, but particularly in the south, we learned. The Oval Nugget. Like an opal. opal, like the gem. Opal, opal. nugget yes. ice maker. Okay. October birthstone. Um, particularly in the South, people like to chew on ice. So if you think of like Sonic Ice, I think Culver's has this. It's 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 bad to chew ice, but it's less bad to chew chewable ice. And so it's it's packed a certain way. It's kind of like made like snow and then repacked, like repacked, and then it's like little little pellets. Uh, but you can chew it, and it doesn't hurt so much. And so we launched a Indiegogo campaign to test to see if people would want to pay for it. So the model at first build was to be innovative in how they designed, built, and sold. And so they were innovative in that they would run open innovation challenges with people all over the world to help kind of design the product. And then they would build it at our interesting you know, makerspace facility. And then we would test it before we would make all of them through Indiegogo. And so instead of asking for like $1 donations on Indiegogo, we would use it as a price testing tool. So we launched it at like $200, $250, 3 $350, and kind of figure out where prices fell. And then we would make them, send them. And, and then um, it's actually become like a, a product so much so that I believe first build finally broke even this past year. So a very cool uh, corporate innovation team that that built actual successful products, which is pretty cool. Yeah, sweet. You talked a little bit about the startup scene in, in Louisville and um, getting sort of immersed in that and being part of, of even probably creating it. Talk a little bit more about that. Where where was the startup scene in Louisville when you s sort of first plugged in, and where is it now? Louisville is 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 tough because it, it still sits in this in this really. It's just in a, such a tough area where it's it's a small market. It's smaller than Columbus. Um, it wants to be a grown up. It has you know one angel group that's been like chugging along. It's got you know one like entrepreneur support group, like a, a smaller version of a Rev One. Um, it doesn't have any of its own funds. 
which is okay, right? There's ecosystems that exist without its own its own funds, um, but it's it's got a lot of the, it's missing a lot of the things that you need, right? It's missing a lot from a talent perspective, and so people have been kind of screaming into a void that is the University of Louisville, saying like, please, please grow your engineering school, um, and it's tough, right? It's tough because Louisville, if anyone's followed, you know, University of Louisville sports, right? Like, they've had a fire, like they're they're. Head director, they had a things have gone swimmingly. <laughs> the the president of the university had to resign. Like the the basketball coach, Patino, had to get fired. I mean, it was like all this drama, right? And so, how do you refocus an organization? And they've just gotten a new president, so we're hoping that that continues to help. But how do you focus when there's all these other problems going on? And and what you need is you need you need engineering talent. You have to recruit people there, which is great. You have to kind of grow it organically, which I think is like this unique blessing of like OSU in that they're like pumping out talent constantly. Um, you've got to have money from somewhere, right? Like the reason we live in Columbus today is because Drive Capital invested in Fro's company and was like, you live here now, right? Like we didn't want to leave. We're happy we're here now. Um, but that's like a reality that you have to kind of face when you're a really small ecosystem. You either have to like attract people here and like grow roots or you have to like, you know, see your talent leave. And so I think Columbus has made a lot of really smart bets in how they're like growing people here organically, both from growing talent and also recruiting talent and also funding companies and, you know, not without its challenges. I'm not saying Columbus is perfect, still lots of room to grow, but. So on the corporate innovation, um, you mentioned that doing corporate innovation is hard. Why do you think that is? Why? Because it's it's it seems like it is the new pinnacle, right? That every it's the ev- new synergy, right? Exactly. Every every company is like starting a, an innovation lab or opening innovation spaces. Across, and it's not just a Columbus thing; it's sort of happening everywhere. Where it's like, okay, now is the time where we must finally become innovative as as a corporation. In your experience, why is it hard, and are what are what's the path for a company to be good at innovation if they're currently not good at it? So, what I really appreciated about when GE Appliance started their innovation team is they it was born out of um, a really innovative leader who was running R and D, and he believed that there were so many product ideas that were left that were cut every year. So, basically, how in, in, in GE appliance land, you know, I've been there for years, but this is how it would work before. Product managers would come with like their top, you know, you know, 10 ideas of what they want to build in their products. So say like a refrigerator, right? Well, maybe they wanted to launch, you know, nugget ice in the refrigerator. Um, but they're going to have a new job in a couple years. So do they want to take that big risk and risk, you know, changing a product and then putting it on a, on a cell room floor and, and, you know, Samsung getting bought instead of the new whatever, you know, fancy ice maker because it takes a lot of money to retool and to re-engineer. So why don't I instead offer, you know, a couple extra cubic inches in my refrigerator instead? And now it's the biggest refrigerator, right? Because that's easy to sell. And so people for a really long time were making those kind of easy bets. And so you'd see competitors coming out with, you know, different ways of opening your doors or different, you know, features coming into these refrigerators because they were willing to take those bigger risks. So that's why GE Appliances started to launch their group. And so it, it felt like it was born out of this like sense of like, I got to get these things tested. I, you know, they had this very clear mission. And to on, be honest, like they started with a bunch of ideas already in their pocket. Yes, they were going to pull more ideas from open innovation and the crowd and all this other stuff. But really they came in and said like, are you kidding me? I've got like a list of like 50 things I could do like right now if you gave me the chance. And I think that that's really helpful. And so what I see in a lot of corporate innovation teams is that they're formed out of this need to be innovative, but they don't really know what that means. There's not really a clear direction. There's a uh, revenue target, 
right? But you're forming a team and you spend the first year or two building a team and building a strategy and then trying to build something and then trying to fight with the internal organizations because you want to launch something that's too close to the thing you've already made or you're already selling. And um, I hope that makes any sense, but it's, it's, it's really tough. And, we, and I see that with a lot of, you know, I, I, I interviewed and I've met with a lot of different corporate innovation teams. And I think it's really tough to set the right expectation and to build the right team and to come in, you know, so so quickly the, you know, leadership is going to, like, raise your revenue targets, you know, or, or tell you you have to hit, you know, you have to break even even sooner. And these days they start piling on these impossible goals and then it's really hard. It seems like many companies are now approaching innovation by acquisition and and paying attention to startups and then and then um, innovating through acquiring a com- uh, companies sure. that have have already started down some innovative disruptive path is that a better innovation strategy worse than doing it internally or can they be equally as good how do you sort of think about an innovation approach and strategy that a company might decide to take yeah I, I think I think acquisitions can work um, I think it's it is totally company dependent which is a total cop-out answer um, <laughs> It's probably true, right? Because you you have to understand how do you want to approach innovation as a company. Do you want to build it from the inside out, or are you better off just sort of cherry picking and and figuring out whether you're just going to be better at acquisition and then maybe assimilation than building it and creating it internally? Yeah. So from being on the product side, you know, I was on two different GE teams. One that was great and we built real products, and one that unfortunately didn't build any real products. Uh, we ran into, you know, the situation that I was talking about of, of just goals piling on top of each other, uh, you know, kind of disaster zone situation, and we ended up folding. We ended up folding within the first year, and it was it was a real bummer, but it was a big learning lesson for me. Um, so I think you have to have kind of multiple strategies, and like we're seeing this at Nationwide right now, right? There's an internal innovation team. It's called Enterprise Innovation. There's a kind of transformational innovation team that's building, like, completely new products, things that, you know, Nationwide isn't doing right now called New Business Innovation I think they're both teams are hiring, FYI. Uh, and then there's a ventures team, right, which is making bets um, that we, in companies that we're going to partner with actively right now, and we're probably like 25% of our portfolio are like absolute, like they scare the company that we invest in them, right? They're they're already competitors, right? Like I, you know, you've seen the, uh, we've made. Ten investments. I think one that's public is is a Next Insurance. We were going to part partner with them. Now they're a carrier themselves. So now we're invested in something that's that's technically a competitor of ours, right? So, um, but that's exciting because it's it's going to push us. We're going to follow them way more closely, and and maybe we'll acquire them one day. Maybe we'll continue to invest in them one day. Maybe we'll you know nationwide we'll we'll start competing more aggressively. Like, I don't know, right? But but it's really interesting to be kind of on all of those different fronts. So what does it mean? And and I should have mentioned this earlier, and I didn't. Um, you are you lead strategic partnerships for nationwide ventures. So what does that mean? What is what is out partnering for nationwide ventures mean for you on a daily basis? So it's it's kind of two things. It's it's one, it's it it can be as simple as, as deal sourcing, right? The more people I meet, the more startups I meet, the more uh, you know other venture capitalists that I meet that, that want to um, include us in their deals, you know, all that type of path to get to the next investment that uh, us as a team are going to make. Um, on the other side, that means as we meet a company, whether we're going to invest in you or not, if it makes sense for us to be partnered with you, 
into the business, I kind of project manage or kind of like shepherd that potential partnership until someone within the business feels like they have enough ownership to kind of take it over themselves. So for so many people within Nationwide or any big company, especially when like innovation teams are formed for the first time, like it's not in everybody's metrics to care what you're bringing into the business, right? It's not on their agenda to partner with like one to two startups a year. That's just not a priority for them. So how do you how do you inspire them or get them excited about, you know, this this startup that they could be partnering with, like, you know, an analytics company or like what drone company should they be partnering with, right? Like it's in insurance, there's a lot of opportunity to cut out people that still climb on roofs to evaluate roof damage, right? Logically, you could have a drone do that, right? But there's like a hundred drone companies doing that. So how do you help pick the right one? Uh, and it might mean that you run a pilot with a couple of them. But shepherding some of those relationships um, into the business is, is a lot of the work that I do. So what's the sort of investment premise and thesis for Nationwide Ventures? Let's start there. So um, we tend to invest um, at the Series A-B stage. We um, don't lead, so that means there's usually a, a bigger institutional investor that's leading and we're taking kind of a minority position. Um, the companies really have to have some type of revenue. That, that's kind of our, our bare minimum. We've looked at things earlier than Series A, we've looked at things later than Series B, um, but you need to have some kind of traction. Um, We've partnered with 75% of our portfolio, but that's not necessary. Uh, I think the biggest areas we focus in are around um, mobility, so the future of mobility. How are people going to continue to move around uh, if they stop owning personal cars? Like, what you know, we have a big auto insurance uh, business, right? So what, what's going to happen um, to mobility if people you know stop owning cars? If the responsibility goes to you know, the OEMs who are creating autonomous vehicles, you know, we don't really know what's happening there. So we're, we're going to make some bets. Uh, cybersecurity. Um, living comfortably in retirement. I think a lot of people don't realize how big uh, Nationwide is on the financial services side. So we have like annuities and mutual funds and life insurance and all this other you know, cool stuff. Uh, and so we want to make bets in, in retirement because we think there's a lot happening as people save their money and then they start to spend their money. Or as young people are starting to save money in a completely different way than, than their parents or their grandparents. Uh, and then the last one is, so that's cybersecurity, mobility, living in retirement, and the last one is called digital. It's kind of the catch-all. We've made some really interesting bets in um, IoT. So um, all kinds of things fit under IoT. Everything from like sensors to keep your home safe um, to you know, workman's comp tools, like how do you monitor like a workplace to keep people safe. Um, so all kinds of things fit under digital. So if you guys don't lead... Does that mean that someone, a company, should be going through someone else and ultimately get to you through another investor that's going to be that's going to be in a syndication or that's going to lead, or can someone start with you guys and then you guys will bring in others and potentially even someone who might might lead around? How should a company think about engaging with you guys and what's the right sort of tone and tenor to do that? Uh, good question. So we don't typically help people find their own leads. Um, typically, people will have their own. So we'll start talking to people, I mean, super early. So we go to, um, you know, we participate with Techstars and their mobility program. We participate with Plug and Play in Silicon Valley. These are two, like, accelerator programs where we often meet companies in, like, the seed stage. We'll build those relationships early and kind of follow you sometimes up to a year just to kind of get to know you if, if you're not at the stage that you're raising. Um, 
And so it's, it's totally acceptable to, to start forming that relationship now. Uh, but typically, we don't find you your lead, but we'll, we'll definitely be your strategic investor, especially as you're starting to pitch people. You can, you know, people often say, well, we've got these interested parties, or we've got some people interested, we've got some strategics interested. Uh, and so we'll, we'll typically kind of play there, but we won't, um, we won't kind of like handhold you, but we'll, we'll definitely like show interest and, and start to kind of give you an idea of, of, of where we think you'd play. And we're always particularly interested in looking at companies that, that would make sense to partner for us. So we can start the partnership process, you know, even before you're, you're raising. So that's kind of, it's a couple of different ways to kind of engage with the ventures team. What does it mean to partner with Nationwide Ventures versus you guys actually become, becoming an investor in a company? Yeah, so I think from, from the Nationwide Ventures perspective, we, we kind of have two like goals. And the first is, is always to, to make the investments, right? Like we, we have to make investments in companies. Um, but the other one is to help bring partnerships into um, the business because we're out there looking and meeting with startups so frequently. It's not always going to be that perfect sweet spot where we're going to be able to make an investment. But you might have just raised and you're awesome, you're scaling, you're growing, but you want and you and you think it makes sense for us to, to work together. And um, I mean, I can give you an example of a company we worked with. We just announced an investment in, um, in Betterview. And so they are a drone company and they're a platform company. They don't make the drones, but they will do the kind of roof evaluations when you're underwriting like a, a home insurance policy. Um, and then they also have all this back-end software that helps you look at like weather data and past inspections and all kinds of cool stuff. Um, and so from a partnerships perspective, we've been talking to them for a long time. And so we've been introducing them to like our claims team. We are introducing them to our uh, personal lines team. And so they're talking with them about running a pilot. And so from a partnership perspective, that's what we mean. It's, it's really like a vendor relationship or like a customer relationship. Just partnership sounds cool. Sounds more sophisticated, right? Um, so as you've engaged with plug and play and tech stars and some of the other national and you've gotten national sort of exposure to other incubators, accelerators, venture studios, whatever people are calling themselves these days, um, it, it, how does um, Columbus compare to what you see happening in other places and is it even worthwhile to talk about comparing and what's happening in, in other places? Oh, Columbus is blowing up. They're getting so much attention for all the different insurance plays that are happening, right? You've got, like, Root. You've got Beam. Um, you've got... What other friends can we mention? Yeah, where are my right. other friends? Shout right. out. Right. Shout out to Safe Chain. Um, um, there's, a, there's, this, there's this one organization called Venture Ohio that's kind of just responsible for all of it, I think. It's so true. Yeah. I hear they have a really good dinner right. in September. Right. Is that right? Yeah. Tickets might be available. Uh. (laughs) there's there's a lot of amazing stuff going on and we do as best we can participate you know like like being here now and and we have gotten to meet a lot of the companies that fit kind of that would be great portfolio companies we've met with um i think unless we're missing some then find me um sometimes they're too early, right? Like sometimes we're, we're, we're having lunches or dinners or networking functions and we're just waiting for the moment that you have the right traction or you are developed enough that it makes sense that we can put you in front of business leaders within the business. It's really tough, you know, with, with big companies like Nationwide. When you're making those introductions, sometimes people ask like, well, hey, can you introduce me to your claims department? And you really kind of only get like a shot to do it, and so we want to make sure that you're in the right place, and we try to make sure that we're, we're helpful, as helpful as we can, and if, if, it's, if it's a no, not right now, it's, it's always because we don't, want to, we don't want you to waste your shot, and I think that's 
that's kind of a hard thing to learn. Or if it's a no on the investment, we do our best to tell you why. Uh, and you might not agree with it, but it's it's the decision that we have to go with, you know, for the time being. Uh, so that, that's that been a fun kind of learning experience and a hard learning experience. So I've, I've tried from a partnership's perspective to always give to always give reasons why if we're going to turn down or if we're not going to be able to move forward with a partnership or if, or if it's going to be a not right now to, to give an explanation. I think that's super important for, for everyone on the, you know, angel investing side up, right, to, to, to do that. What's the team at Nationwide Ventures look like? How big are you guys and, and how, how sort of impactful can you guys be based upon the size of the team? Are five of us on the ventures team right now. Um, Eric Ross and Brian Anderson were kind of the, the two guys who who helped start the organization. They've been there the longest. I've been the, they've been there like 18 months or so. Um, the rest of us there's there's five of us total on the team. Uh, three of us have all joined within the last six months. Um, so we're really growing. So there's four people purely on the investment on the investing side, and then there's myself who's helping. I, I help with research, you know, deal sourcing, partnership stuff, as I mentioned, and then the other four are. are almost 100% dedicated to the investment side. So um, I think what many people, at least with Nationwide, I mean, this is a potentially much more technology and startup savvy crowd, don't realize about the investment space is that it, it takes a lot of time to decide if you're going to make an investment or not, right? Like, it's not just meeting once or twice. It's meeting sometimes many times. It's, it's diving into um, your decks and then your financial models and then deciding whether this is the right bet of the, you know, as I, I'll talk about Better View again, of the, you know, 100 different drone companies and 50 of them working on insurance. Is this the right one to be making? Um, and so that, that can take time. And then we have to go through an investment committee. So unlike... Perhaps some institutional investors who can move a little bit faster. You know, we have to go through a, you know, a couple different different hoops to jump through. So we try to be as re respectful with founder time as possible, but it, sometimes it can be a little tough. How does how does the Nationwide Ventures team see itself inside of the greater Nationwide enterprise, and how do you think? the greater enterprise and the, and the other leaders inside of the company sort of see the ventures team? So internally, we, I, I kind of describe us as, as we have like three main goals internally. And so it's always, again, investment. Second is partnerships. And then the third one, which is, is completely internal, is around strategic learnings or education. So because we're the most external facing group, even of the other innovation teams, we're the ones who are bringing back a lot of knowledge or, or, or introductions um, so we try as best we can to always bring business leaders with us. We go to lots of conferences and selection days for these accelerators and demo days. So we always try to bring business leaders because I've met with so many people within the business who I was like, oh, well, I was at this accelerator last week, and they're like, what's an accelerator? Right? And so not a crucial term to know, but there's just like a general level of understanding. So most of them have seen Shark Tank. So that's like, that's what your that's your basis, right? Like that's what you're starting from. And so you have to do a little bit of education. And we get tons of people who email us like, hey, this guy emailed me on LinkedIn. You know, is this the company I should be, you know, have you guys invested in them yet? And so it's really difficult because you have to wade through people's great intentions and also spending the right time on the right stuff, right? Because if the longer that you're in some of these fields, you know, my boss is getting hundreds of emails from lots of people per day. It's, it's so hard um, to try to make sure you're giving everyone the time and the attention that they deserve because everyone's working really hard on their companies. Have you had a founder that you, that you guys were talking to about investment in mail somebody, a business leader, and say, hey, I'm talking to the investments team. You should talk to them about investing in me. Has that actually happened? Uh, we've, we've certainly had... Uh, 
some folks who have kind of blanketed a lot of different people. So they, they'll kind of find a bunch of executives and find us and kind of reach out to everyone at one time. And it's really tough because you're getting a lot of inbounds and it, it's, it's, it's difficult because... Yeah, and I think there's a lot of strategies, and you know, like Mark Suster and, and I'll let like institutional investors like give most of the preaching. I, I think it's difficult when you kind of do a lot of that outreach. We've had people who have like called all of our numbers and then figured out who the executive assistant was and called them and got them to schedule it. And it's just really hard because it feels um, disingenuous, and it feels like it's very hard to to want to work with someone who's not kind of trying in a, in a kind of polite kind of sales way, right? There's certain sales tactics that are really effective. Um, and so I try my best, and, and many of us do try to be out in the community as best we can to meet with companies because you don't want to be um, you know, behind a closed door and unreachable because I think that that's really difficult as well. So it's always that really hard balance of, of wanting to respond to everyone um, but not always getting the chance to um, and, and, you know, Totally, totally. And it's also super hard to know within a business, like, who do you talk to? There's, like, tons of people in, like, IT, and then there's people in, like, technology innovation. Are they different from the internal innovation team? Are they different from the ventures team? Like, it's really hard to know. So, like, I, I have empathy there. I think perhaps, I, I mean, I try to respond as best I can to, to, to the requests. Sometimes it's really hard to be taken seriously when there's not a lot of context in the email. I think the hardest thing that I've dealt with is people writing and saying, like, I have this AI and machine learning startup that I think is going to be really awesome for you and your business. I can't, I don't even know where to start, right? It's, it doesn't even make sense when you get, you know, 10 of those. How do you ask people for context for each one, right? It's really helpful if you can build out, like, a really thoughtful, short message on, on where it is you think you fit. Um, you know, I, I get healthcare pitches, even though we don't, we don't invest, you know, Nationwide isn't a healthcare company or health insurance company. So it's, it's really tough. And I think crafting, you know, it, it's the marketing and the sales is such an important part of any early startup that you have to figure out how to like craft your message really tastefully, really quickly. Um, and, and I think those cold outreach, outreach emails can work, but you really have to be thoughtful with, with what you're going to try to say. Look at the website, find out what the investment thesis is, make sure like you're not pitching your healthcare insurance startup to a nationwide that does property and casualty and, and life insurance, right? Um, just look and then and then try to find a person that, that best makes sense. You know, I, I don't think it's bad to reach out to like two people within you know, sometimes people reach out to the partnerships person and then an investor. Totally makes sense. Uh, but just don't kind of cold email every single person and hope that one of those goes through because we'll probably all talk about it and um and decide it's probably, you know, that's not probably a best use of time. <laughs> I don't know. In Columbus? Uh, I can tell you I'll still be dancing. And that's probably the best that I can answer that right now. Um, can you talk about the advantages and disadvantages and just kind of the overall difference when it comes to corporate venture in relation to an independent firm that can work by themselves? Like like an institutional investor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So having not worked for one, I don't want to speak on behalf of them, but they they do traditionally have 
uh, a little more flexibility and they're able to move faster. Um, that's a truth, right? Um, on the corporate venture side, what I really enjoy about it is that there's this other opportunity to provide strategic value to the business through, you learn a lot about how whatever company you're working for operates. Um, depending on the structure of the corporate venture team, right? Ours specifically, we operate as strategic. So I'm learning a lot about how um, retirement products work, how um, property and casualty side of the business works. And I'm, I'm fascinated that by that. You know, maybe part of it is the engineering side of my brain that's always trying to problem solve. But I love that I get to learn about how the business operates now, as well as constantly learning about you know, what are the future macro trends, right? Because you, everyone reads the reports and everyone goes to the conferences, but you've got, like, someone that you can call and have a 15-minute meeting with, like, right on hand to tell you, like, well, this is how, you know, annuities have developed into the product they are today. And I think that's super, that's a, a super cool advantage of being at a, at a corporate venture team. Thank you. I understand. Uh, so my question was, um, where do you see gamification coming into insurance? Um, and, and I guess the second one, you can either answer this one or the other one. But uh, the telematics, how, what part of the business do you see that taking over on the auto side? Yeah, so I, I know we're partnering right now with one of our portfolio companies called Nexar um, on the telematics side. And so we're, I, I believe we're, we're preparing a running to run some pilots. Um, so we'll see. I think there's so many companies. I went to the Techstars Mobility Selection Day, and so many companies are all building elements you know, potentially features of what will become an autonomous vehicle. And, and so it's really hard to make any big bets right now, I think, because you don't know what is going to quickly be integrated into, you know, a product and what's going to become a full-fledged company. I think that's, that's really tough if you're trying to build a standalone business that's so dependent on car manufacturers, right? Or, or, or I, So I don't know. I, I can't make a lot of bets there. On the gamification side, we've seen a lot of gamification attempts around um, life insurance. So specifically around how to get people to adhere to medication or to, to take better care of themselves, right? There's a lot of people that are unfortunately excluded from life insurance because they don't realize that they need it until they're very sick, right? This especially happens when people are older, they're married, they want to make sure that their partner is taken care of. Uh, and so they realize, um, oh man, I have to get this big health evaluation and blood tests and all these other things. And so there's been some interesting startups forming right now around how do you gamify making sure you're taking your medication? How can we include more people in the life insurance um, product? Of course, everyone, you know, big companies are incentivized because it will allow them to, to make money off of these products, but also it, it really does give people the coverage that they're going to need, especially as you're seeing, you know, risks in, in, in Medicaid and Medicare and, and Social Security, right? You're, you're going to need something in order to protect you. You have your right now personality, you have the future personality you think you're going to be, and you're always almost, you're like, like, like someone I watched like a talk about, you're always your like Friday night version of yourself, right, when it comes to these decisions. Uh, and you don't want to be that 6 a.m. version of yourself, and you kind of put it off as long as possible. Uh, and so you're always that Friday night version, and it, it, it's tough to try to get people to make those decisions. And as long as, and as, long as your last yeah, so how do you craft products? And, and I think that's something that we're going to have to think about long-term as well, is how do you build products for the way people are going to act versus how we, like, wish the world would be, right? This is the same in, like, so much public policy. It, it's how do you, how do you craft regulation and laws and, and, and services for the way people are going to act anyway, um, even even with best intentions. So my question for you, uh, and just to like gauge where, I guess, you, Nationwide is really, I guess, 
targeting or, or maybe just something that you might say could be super fun in the future. But nowadays we see a lot of large enterprises merging together and some you know, criticism over whether or not that's fair in, in the industry. If you could pick one like huge name for Nationwide to acquire with, would could you share with, with us what that would be if it'd be like Uber or, I mean, like Microsoft acquiring LinkedIn and GitHub is a thing. So um, I don't know if I'm like legally allowed to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, leave it to me to ask. Them. No, I think that's that's such a cool question. I, right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think there. Yeah, maybe a. Could be industry, yeah. I mean, would, does Nationwide, like right now Nationwide Ventures, are you looking more at like sm smaller lead projects or is that something that you guys would take a call for if you got one? Obviously you might. We, so, so some of the things we've been in is we've been in like wellness before and I, I know that we got out of the wellness space because it was very difficult, as you said, to get people to change behaviors. Um, I would like to see us do more in, in the retirement and, and kind of long-term care space. I think... Nationwide has a lot of kind of like assets under management when it comes to people like saving for retirement. And I think there's so much more we have the opportunity to do as people are starting to enter retirement. Again, as we start to think about specifically people who are going to be retiring in like the next 20, 30, 40 years, like there's a lot, there's a lot that's changing, right? There's a lot that's changing for even my mom who's in her 50s. I don't even know what's going to be available to me. So I think we have to start thinking about that now because I don't want people to be without without any care. And I think there's been a lot of, I think, buzz internally around how do you help people with long-term care specifically? So what kind of like products can you offer people such that they can age in place? Or if all of their wealth is in their home, like what kind of products can we be offering people that allow them to, to you know, not reverse mortgages, but maybe something that's a little, a little kinder, um, Reverse mortgages have a bad rap. So I think there's, I think there's, to answer, try to answer your question, I think there's a lot of opportunity in, in the really unsexy space of helping people as they get older. And I don't know what that means yet. I, I don't know if that means, I, it's very unsexy, but it's very real, right? It's like a, like a Bitcoin acorn product maybe I don't know yeah and acorn did right acorn has a product right now for young people to I think start to put money away for retirement I think it's really interesting but what is there as people start to age um, from, a, from a health perspective even that we could start to eventually go into yeah Ryan how are you good to see you uh, thanks for coming in uh, one of the things you said was important you guys was uh, sourcing deal flow um, I was curious like what kinds of things are some of the more reliable sources of deal flow. You mentioned Techstars Mobility uh, demo day, which is cool. Yeah. Uh, but it'd be really interested to hear about, is it VCs, is it accelerators? Like, what, what, where, where do you find good sources for, for deal flow? It's, it's other VCs, to be honest. So a lot of us come in with a couple of relationships. And so, you know, you leverage those relationships you have. You, you know, people like uh, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, 
see a lot of, of, of great companies, right? They, they offer these super unique products around like venture debt. And so they see, they intimately know a lot of the best companies. And so we've been really fortunate to form some of those relationships as well. But, but truly it's, it's other VCs and, and, and then other founders. So other founders tend to hang out with other founders that are maybe in their, in their same kind of band of like where they are. Like maybe they all raise their series A around the same time together, or they're all under the same, uh, portfolio and so they hang out at CEO events and then they know that their buddy you know there's a stealth company over here you know uh, that you got to meet and and that's how you meet them it's, it's really interesting there's no one source oftentimes the plug and plays of the tech stars are great for really early stage companies but if you want someone in your sweet spot it's 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 all referral it's all this this magic network which is both great and also really difficult for people to enter for the first time right yeah I was just gonna add most entrepreneurs would sort of cringe right that oh well the way to get to investors is through other investors so it sounds very incestuous and very sort of you know closed door um how does how does it debunk that why is that yeah. not the case i i think that they can come back in a way to the to the diversity issue that we're facing, right? Or that we're kind of trying to work on. And so I come in with my own unique network, right? I, I come in with my own experience around how important role models were to me and how important it is that other women reached out to me. And so now I make a specific effort to do that. And I think that's, you see it so often. Like I've seen so many people within big companies, um, you know, get the job because they also went to the same college. Like that stuff just happens, right? Like you can be upset about it or not, but it's, it keeps happening, right? Uh, and so I think the more we can get more people of, of diverse backgrounds and connections, right? Like I've, I've been in Arizona, I've been in Louisville, I've been here, I lived in Chicago for a little while. And so I have, you know, a, a network that regardless, we all kind of carry our own network with us, right? As, as we travel and as we go from job to job. So I think that becomes really important. And so the more that we can do to kind of build a broader network, I think the better it is. Um, but I agree with you, which is why it still comes back to, right, if you can craft a great message, uh, I'll respond to the right LinkedIn message, regardless of where you're from or what your background is. Um, so sell it, right? I, I think that's a helpful way. Um, that's kind of what I got. So if so, there is a secret LinkedIn message that will get you through the door that Emilio will respond to. Or apparently the drive fill form. <laughs> or, or filling out the drive fill form, right. Um, that also works. Um, do you like accelerators, and do you think accelerators are good? Uh, Louisville had a couple of them, and they didn't work. Uh, they just couldn't sustain themselves. I think it's really tough. I'm, I'm half in, half out, right? They're, they're an opportunity for people who wouldn't otherwise get in the door sometimes to, to get that access, right? And so if, if from that perspective they provide value, um, then that's great, right? I know, like, Rev1 has a program to help people who, who it's not an accelerator, but it's like a pre-accelerator, right? It's like, it's an academy of some sort to teach, like, lean business model training. I think for a lot of people who didn't have access to that in college or through something else, those programs are really helpful. Um, I don't, you know, I wouldn't leave right now and go start an accelerator, but I think there's some that are that are doing good work, right? And Techstars has been, has some track record of at least pulling people together. Um, so I don't know, I, I don't know that, I, I haven't worked one, so I shouldn't pass judgment. Yeah, it's, um, because I'm debating this myself, because, you know, you look at 500 startups, and they've invested in a shit ton of companies. Like 500? Right, like 500 maybe. Um, and... They have like one or two, yeah. like 
sort of successes and, and exits. And so then it's like, well, you know, accelerators at that level, right, that, you know, are they really, are they really changing the trajectory of companies or does it come down to, and where I always fall back to is if you build the right team and the right team is working on a high value problem and they execute well enough, accelerator or no accelerator, they're probably going to find a way to make it work. Yeah, I... I to that, I've seen a couple companies from Louisville go to accelerators in like San Francisco and New York, and the accelerator was the opportunity that they wouldn't have otherwise gotten to meet potential investors and to meet potential new team members and to meet other people outside of your own kind of Midwest bubble or South bubble. Louisville's kind of on the fence. Um, they wouldn't get to otherwise, right? Like without that. You know, and, and the companies might not all work out, but they, you know, they learned a lot, and maybe their next company is successful. That's not necessarily a great use of people's money to use an accelerator as a learning opportunity, um, but it still inevitably gave them opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise have. Yeah, for sure. Okay, one final question for Amelia. Oh, sure, Fallon. Hey, um, so as a corporate venture fund. How are you guys measuring your success? Are you putting more importance on returns from the fund or the talent that you meet, the partnerships that you form, and the M&A opportunities? So since we're under kind of the innovation arm of Nationwide overall, there's, there are some revenue targets for all of, of the Nationwide team, of the innovation teams. Um, and so I, I think that there's an expectation that at some point we will provide some track to some M&A opportunities. Um, whether those be investment companies or not. We do have an expectation that we will provide returns, but if you look at you know the $100 million we're investing compared to the billions of dollars that Nationwide's like investment arm has, we're like, pennies, right? We're like a drop in the bucket. So from, when I've heard executives talk about you know, the success of Nationwide's innovation team and ventures specifically, it, it is around the partnerships. It's around the value we'll be creating by helping to educate other business leaders or departments on, you know, what's happening in the industry, help them think through what customers want, right? They think they know what customers want, but there's a million different ways you could do it. And getting ourselves outside of the box of, of building everything ourselves, there's a lot of stuff that's just it's moving so quickly, it, it makes more sense to partner. Uh, and I, so I think that's, that's one of the biggest things that I've heard out of. And I'm, I don't think I'm biased, even though partnerships is my role, but I, I've heard executives say those partnerships and the learnings that you can bring back into the business are one of the biggest values. So you, you are clearly the secret sauce of, of driving the outcomes from this? Nationwide Ventures. Yeah, of course. Um, so, yeah, everything we've talked about will be online. Only three, only three people will watch it, but um, those three people will be, you know, clearly entertained. Deal. Okay. Please help me thank Amelia for coming tonight. Thanks for listening to this Startup Brand Columbus event podcast. We will be back next month with more entrepreneurial experiences and insights. Thanks again to our lead partners, AWH and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com forward slash Columbus to see our future events and to see videos of past ones. Until next time, keep grinding. Keep grinding.